Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Good afternoon again. Good to be back together. It's the good thing about these holy day season, we're together quite a bit. We don't have to go an entire week without being together. As Jan mentioned, certainly was a great kickoff to the Holy Day season on Thursday, on the first day of the seventh month. We're on the third day of the seventh month, seven days to go before the Feast of Atonement. Last week we began a study on the first epistle of John. Just to recap a little bit from that, he was the last of the living apostles, and most importantly, was a witness. He says that several, several times throughout his writings, but that is one of the most important things we can take from not just his message, but the message of the others, was that he was a witness. He was one of many, but he was a witness. And what we saw last week in the first couple of chapters was the gist of his message was, we've all been telling you the very same things. And we haven't created them ourselves. What we have been teaching you is what we were taught by Jesus Christ himself. And we can see those themes that Christ and these the living witnesses, what they have written to us, all reflected in the themes of the holy days. And John's message was that everything you have been taught by everyone else who has written before me, who has spoken to you before me, is true. I'm the last man standing, so to speak, the last living witness standing, and I'm here to tell you one final time before I go that everything they said, I'm telling you too, is true. Despite all the years that have passed, that have gone between those writings and what I'm writing to you now, the truth hasn't changed. I'm not going to give you anything new. I'm not going to make up anything earth-shattering or or brand new. I'm just going to tell you the same thing from my perspective. Because I was there, I saw it, I heard it, I lived it. The redemptive plan of God that has been in production for thousands of years is the same one everyone else has been teaching you even before Christ came. Back when Moses wrote, the scribes, the prophets, into the apostles, Luke, James, Jude, all of those other folks that have written, we've been telling you the same, the very same thing. What God expects from us is the same. What he expected from us when he created Adam hasn't changed to what he expects of us now. And we practice becoming like Jesus Christ through these messages of the holy days. Let's go back to, and again, as I mentioned last week, if you have a marker, throw it into 1 John. Let's go back to where we left off at the end of chapter 2. We sang in one of our hymns today, Blessed Assurance. We sing these words, and I hope when we sing them that we actually sing them with understanding, that we're not just by rote mechanically singing songs, but when we're singing praises to God, we hear the words that we're saying. And we're singing blessed assurance. This, this, what we know is, is a surety. It is a surety that, can, that, that keeps us going through these hard times that we hear about. Let's go to the end of chapter 2, verse 28, pick up where we left off. And see this Feast of Trumpets message here 
for us. And now, little children, abide in him. Abide in him that when he appears, we may have confidence, we may have that blessed assurance, and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Not only did he live, he is coming back. He is coming back. That's, we just went through that whole message on Thursday and, and looked forward to that day when he returns, whenever that is. And John here is, is telling us he is coming back. And he wants us to be assured that he is coming back. Why does he say this? Let's go back to John 14. He can say this because he heard it from the master himself. He heard it from the master himself. John 14. And again, it's a Feast of Trumpets theme, but we're going back to the New Testament Passover. So again, we see, again, that the, we can't separate these holy days. They, they, they take on meanings. They have different aspects of God's plan, but it's the same, it's the same plan from front to back. John 14 and verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled, Christ tells his, his disciples and soon-to-be apostles. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. So he's, again, this assuredness of what Christ tells, t- is telling them. If it weren't so, I would have told you it was not so. But I'm telling you it is so, so you can believe this. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. Don't be worried that I'm going away. Be assured I'm coming back. Be assured I'm coming back. That where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way, you know the way. I've shown you the way. I've been here for enough time now. I have shown you the way. John, back in his epistle, you don't need to turn back there yet, I'll remind you of what he read there, the confidence, but also that we, may, that we will not be ashamed when, of ourselves when we see him come. Why does John mention this, this possible shame? Let's go to Luke 18. Pastor Adrian referred to this in depth on Thursday in his message. Let's go to Luke 18. How could we possibly feel shame upon the return of Christ? He touches on it here in Luke 18 at the end of this parable of the unjust judge. And jumping into the context in verse 6, the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. Shall, not avenge, shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? We heard that explained in detail on Thursday. I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? So when we get to that time, if we happen to be alive and Christ, we see Christ coming in the air, we cannot feel ashamed that we did not do enough, that we are somehow lacking, that we didn't give it our all. And John is, is warning the, the church here in his epistle that while we, that we need to live our life with full confidence that Christ is coming back, do everything we can for him, become, continue to build our character like him, serve him, serve others through that, so that when he comes there will not be the least bit 
feeling of shame or regret that we have not given it our all or are not prepared for his coming. Christ, or John here, at the, end of, at the end of that, verse 29, talks about everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Be reminded this word is genao. Genao. That hasn't changed from any of the teachings that Christ talked about way back in when John wrote his, his gospel in John 3 through John 6, talking about the fact that we are not, as the world teaches today, born again. We are not, we can't be. He says, flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God. So we are not truly, completely born of God. We are begotten. We have received our inheritance. As long as we stay on the straight and narrow, do not give up and do not turn back like Adam did, we will be born again. We, we, we have full assurance that as long as we do our part, Christ has done his part and will do his part. So there's no change to the truth that Christ presented some 60 years before John is writing this. And John reminds them of that with this terminology, born of him, genao in the Greek. Moving on now in the, in the epistle. And we heard a little bit, little bit about this on Thursday as well. Verse 1, what was read here in the scripture reading. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Do you have any idea, John is saying, how blessed you are to be called and part of the covenant people? Do you have, never forget how important, how, how blessed we are be able to keep these feast days, to be able to gather on his Sabbath amongst his people and to, to worship him and learn of him. Do you have any idea, John says, how blessed you are to be called and part of the covenant people? He continues, Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. So there is, there is a difference. There is a difference between the covenant people and those who are not the covenant people. Beloved, now we are children of God, And it has not been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. He first loved us. We we are in this not because of any doing that we have done and anything we've deserved, earned, merited of any kind. But as other scriptures throughout the the New Testament writings, tell us he first loved us. He came down and laid down his life so we could have eternal life. We cannot ever get callous enough to forget the blessing that that is. As we were talking through a counseling session over the last few months, Pastor Adrian and I, and he brought up a point to the individual that if all of mankind was perfect, except you, that you were the only person who had sent, Christ would have still come and given his life for you. That's how important this plan of God is. If every person on earth had lived a perfect life, God would still have, Christ would still have come down and offered his life so that you had an opportunity for salvation. When, so when we, we read the context here that behold what manner of love has the father bestowed upon us that is that that is personal and that is personal so that we stay so connected to this we never forget we never become callous we never become flippant about this 
that God and Christ sacrificed Christ. He sacrificed his life. God sacrificed his son for us individually. For his covenant people so that he could share his glory with all. But when we come to this truth, it, it must be personal. It must, must be personal. And we see how this message of the Passover flows over into the fall days because the whole concept of Christ coming and tabernacling with us is a, is a tabernacle's message, that he came as creator and became part of creation. And we reap these benefits because he first loved us. And he continues here talking about how there's so much more we don't know about the future. We know some. We've been, we look through a glass, dark, a glass dimly. We've been given a glimpse into the future. But this doesn't tell us everything that's going to happen. We are going to, when, when Christ comes back, it is, going to be, it is going to be, I'm sure, a joyous surprise as to what we will go through in that process from the time he comes back to the time we come into the kingdom of God and all that's going to be like. And John here says, not everything's been revealed yet. He said, we covered last week at the end of his gospel where he said, there's so much more I wish I could write down, but I, I just don't have, the, I, I can't get it all written down what there is to write down. This is exciting. This is, this is why we, we study God's word on a, on a regular basis, why we repeat these, 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 these holy day celebrations on an annual basis. We've got a glimpse of what it will be like, of what it will be like to be with him, to be like him. There's some descriptors in here. And to be able to see him in his glorified state, as John says here. But exactly how and what, that's, that's, it would blow the mind for us to, act, to absolutely have perfect understanding of that. But John here is saying, telling us to stay tuned. Stay tuned, stay connected, because this is going to be an amazing ride when we get to that point. John then jumps into, as we see this tabernacle Passover connection here, with Christ coming and giving his life for us but coming and tabernacling with us so that he could give his life for us. He then jumps into this discussion on sin in the following verses. And we see in verse 4, sin defined for us. That sin is the transgression of the law. Some of your versions may say lawlessness. Sin is the transgression of God's holy, righteous, and perfect law. That hasn't changed. That hasn't changed since Genesis 3 when Adam chose to turn his back. Sin is sin, and sin is the transgression of his law. He continues, verse 5, You know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. So again, little bit of teaching there from the, the Passover aspect that he was manifest to take away our sins. We, we give our life to God. We take the waters of baptism. We accept the shed blood of Jesus Christ so that we do not have to pay the penalty of sin that we so have deservedly earned. Little children, he continues, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for he, his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. <clears throat> so 
So does this say we cannot sin if we're true believers? If we are true believers, we don't sin. Is that what this says? Remember two things we've learned over the years, the last few years here. There are three types of sin. There is sin, transgression, and iniquity, each with increasing levels of lifestyle. We sin out of our humanity. We repent nightly. We ask God for forgiveness. We stay on course, but we still have human character in us. There is sin that is transgression, and there is worse sin that is iniquity, which is a completely altered lifestyle where you have, you have no part with the Father. Do we live a life following God, or do we stumbling in our humanity, but seeking forgiveness and help from the Holy Spirit? We read last week how God, was, God will send the Holy Spirit as a helper to help us through this. Do we live lives following God, John says. He's making the distinction here that there's a life following God, where we stumble in our humanity, but the Holy Spirit helps us when we seek forgiveness. It'll help, the Holy Spirit will help guide us, help become more like Christ. Or do we lead a double life <clears throat> with one foot in the world? We covered last week the three types of sin, all about serving the self, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. But there are, this does not say that because we are believers in God that we won't sin, and that if we do sin, of the devil. Turn with me to his concluding remarks, actually, in chapter 5. Let's jump ahead to his part of his conclusion. Verse 16. If anyone, 1 John 5, verse 16, if anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask, and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. So there is sin that leads to death, and there is sin that doesn't lead to death, all in line with what we studied about the three types of sin. Back to 1 John 3. So when we read that, Having already repented and given our life to God, are we now in overcoming mode? We talked recently about the the need for God's people to overcome. Understanding we have human frailties, but completely focused on becoming like Jesus Christ. When we read that, when we see that in that passage, let's go back to Romans 8 and see that John is, is tapping into something that Paul wrote about years earlier. Romans 8, verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So as we we work through this life, John reminds us that it is important to, to set a distinction. That while we are human and frail, Our minds must be focused on Christ, must be completely focused on the kingdom of God. We can't have one foot in and one foot out. That's why he covered these idolatrous sins of lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, because it is so important for us to stay completely focused and separate ourselves from the world and be completely focused 
on becoming like God and becoming like Christ and not having serving two masters. We talked about that again last week as well. One foot in and one foot out. So we must be on constant guard with our minds. Satan has always been after our minds, after our choices, after our attention. Are we about fulfilling the self or are we about serving God? And what better place to practice that than at the holy days? With a room full of kings, future kings and priests, we should be tripping over ourselves to serve. We should, we should be, there should be nobody in line at the food because everyone wants somebody else to go first. We should, there should be no need for us to, to be short-staffed because we should be tripping over ourselves to serve each other. Verse 10. John then gets into a long discussion, and we won't take this line by line, but John gets into a long discussion here about love. But he begins in verse 10. With all of this backdrop, he's leading up to a discussion, a long discussion on agape love. In this, in this, talking about keeping ourselves unspotted and separate and, and, and righteous and following God's law. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. How can we tell? How, how, do, how can we tell where our heart is? How can God tell where our heart is? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. How is our, how is our, whether we are of the mindset of God or still stuck serving the adversary, it's how we treat our brother. That's how God knows. And how does John know this? Christ said so back in John 13. Let's go back there. You know the verse. You could probably repeat it to, to me verbatim, but let's go back and read it. John was specific here to say how is this keeping in mind that we must always keep ourselves unspotted, always keep ourselves focused on, on being righteous and, and becoming more like Christ. How can we tell where we are? It's how we treat each other. That's, that's the litmus test. And decades earlier, he heard Christ say himself, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, and that you also love one another. And by this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. By this, not just will I know, everybody's going to know. You can't, hide, you can't hide how you treat each other. You, you can't hide that fact. By this will all men know. So our agape meter is the truest indication of where we are in our walk with Christ. Our agape meter. Where are we and how we treat each other? Do we get irritated? Do we, have, do we pick and choose who we serve? Do we pick and choose what we do? Where, are, where is our agape meter? <clears throat> is there a gap in your agape, as we heard about so a few years ago now? How much we are truly committed to the way, and whether we will be, will we be amongst those that Christ will find faith when he comes back? Will we be amongst that group? How will we know? How will he know? How we treat each other, how we serve one another. That's the best, that's the, that's the single most important way for us to show God 
where we are is how we treat each other. So we read this passage and we consider why John has written this capstone of all teachings. So he's come through as the last living apostle. He has heard everything that everybody has, has preached. He heard Christ himself. He's building up in this, this, his last general epistle. The, the, last, the, the other two that are canonized are, are letters to, to, are more like letters to smaller groups or, or, or in the case of John 3, the, the, to Gaius, the third John. But here, this general epistle to the to the, the church as a whole, leading up to this long discussion on love, as this capstone that amounts to a capstone on on the canon, and it all comes down to agape love and how we treat his basic, his basic thing is how do you treat each other? That's what you have to worry about. That's how you, that's what we have to worry about. And we could many many scriptures come to mind. Let's go down to. Verse 13, do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. So when we consider this agape love we're to have, do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. How do we know that we have crossed that, we have made that transition from being serving the adversary to serving God? Because we have no hatred for anybody. We come and we have love for the brethren. That's how we'll know he who does not love his brother abides in death. We read here where Christ is saying, abide with me as I abide with the Father, and we can become one, this, this atonement-like oneness. If we don't, there's only one other abiding in. There's either abiding in life or abiding in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. How does he know that? We don't even have to turn to Matthew 5. He covered what the commandments were really all about in his very first diatribe to, the, to his potential apostles, the disciples. It had nothing to do with murder. It had everything to do with the heart because it starts here. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding him. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us. This is, there's nothing new here. We... we we could just go and read the Gospels. We could just go read what Christ said. But John has just recapped everything here for us, like the other writers have recapped for us, because it's the same message. But 60 years later, before he goes, he says, I need to tell everybody that everything you've heard is true, and it hasn't changed. And we're just going to keep, I'm just going to rehash everything you know, so that you, you don't forget what I saw, what I heard taught is absolute truth. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of truth and, sh- we shall, assure- and shall assure our hearts before him. We hear James. We can go to, we th- immediately think of James talking about active faith. We can be all about talk, but if we actually don't show it, it's just dead. That faith is dead. And J- John here is just teaching us the same thing. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. I believe in Christ, therefore he owes me. Is that what it says here? Is that what faith is? Whatever you ask, you'll receive. Is that really what it says? 
Let's go to, hold your place there. Let's go to John 14. Again, he's just reiterating what he heard decades earlier from the Savior himself. John 14. It is much deeper than simply professing the words that I believe in Christ. Verse 13 of John 14. Whatever you ask in my name, <clears throat> that I will do. If you ask in my name, if you, if you have faith that I am your Savior, that what, what I'm telling you is true, and you ask of good conscience, not about serving the self. This has nothing to do, we, he covered that stuff off, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. He's not talking about the physical. Whatever you ask, whatever you need, this, that's why I'm sending you the helper. Whatever you need, whatever you ask, if you ask in complete faith, knowing in full confidence that I am the Son of God, I will give you. I will give you. And I will, that I will do, that my Father may be glorified in his Son. And why will he do this? Because he wants his Father to get the glory. He wants his Father to get the glory. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth that the world cannot receive. We covered that off last week, because it neither sees him or knows him. Have faith in me, have complete faith, whatever you ask in complete faith, I will give I will give you. And if you love me, do what I say. Let's go back and reread what we read in chapter three here. Verse twenty two. Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. We manifest our love for God by doing what he says. And when we do what he says and ask, and we do it out of complete faith, he'll give us what we need. He'll give us what we need. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the, same, on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. He's simply reiterating everything Christ taught him, everything Christ taught him. Ask in my name in complete faith, not to satisfy yourself, and show your love by obeying him. Very simple, very simple. John then drops down into, changes courses just a bit, to talk about false teaching and doctrine. False teaching and doctrine. Now he who he keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him, and by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they, have got, they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. By this you'll know whether they have the spirit. Whether they are speaking from the vantage point of being true prophets of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Number one, prophet has to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and he came in the flesh. That Number one. 
And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this spirit, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, and he covers quite a bit of that in, when he gets into his, the, the revelation. Which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. You are of God, little children, and I've overcome them because he, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God, and he who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us, and by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. When we are completely plugged in, when we are fully committed to God, have the complete faith that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, that his word is true, we can easily discern right from wrong. We can easily discern spirit of truth from spirit of error. And it, he cover, it goes into this false teaching, and it seems to be a concern of every New Testament writer. Every New Testament writer seems to be concerned with false teaching. Why, why again, does John feel the need, amongst this talk of agape, to talk about false teaching? Because Genesis 3, the error of Genesis 3, runs from beginning to end through the scriptures. The whole reason we're here is because of false doctrine. Back when Satan told Eve, that's not what he meant. And what we covered recently is the whole, we've got all of this because of false doctrine. Because somebody believed the adversary when they said, don't listen to God, listen to me. And Satan, our adversary, does not want us to be part of the kingdom of God. So he will do everything he can. To some, he'll throw health issues. To some, he'll, he'll use your, your physical weaknesses. He'll, he'll, he'll play on, on some character flaws that you have. To others, it'll be false doctrine. He'll, throw, he'll be fishing for little bit with false doctrine to see if he can grab you. But false doctrine here gets covered in John's last epistle because it is important for us to be able to stay so plugged in using this helper that God has given us in following God's word when we hear things to be able to discern is what I'm hearing right or is what I'm hearing wrong? Because I, I don't want to be strayed. I don't want to, to stray away from truth. I don't want to follow elsewhere. Because John saw over the course of his time as an apostle, as, as, a, as a minister, as an elder, as a servant of God, he saw people fall by the wayside over false teaching, over false teaching. And he goes into it, he actually has his future, his future uh, shorter epistles deal a little more in depth with that because it was, it was so on his mind as a, in his long tenure as a servant of God, he saw so many fall by the wayside. And how we deal with it is critical. We covered that recently as well when our, in our study of 1 Thessalonians 5. That we discern, we study. We don't act in an unruly fashion when we hear something that, that isn't right. But we patiently, relying on the Holy Spirit to help us discern, right, rightfully divide the, the word of truth. But it's important here that John covers this off in the middle of talking about love and then actually he jumps back into love. But he, in the middle here, somehow, for, if, because it was on his mind, false doctrine 
separates God's people. It separates God's people. It gets in, and it was important here for him that he covers this off. Verse 7. Moving on in chapter 4, verse 7. And we won't go through this in a lot of detail here. But John here connects the sacrifice of Christ as the ultimate act of love of God. That the that this whole concept of agape, this whole concept of, of loving one another, we simply only need to look at the sacrifice of his son as the ultimate act of love. That a God being who had no need personally, there was no benefit to him from a personal, it, it's, it's almost convoluted to even talk about God thinking from a selfish standpoint. But just for purposes of this discussion, he had no need to come. But his love for his creation demanded that he came. And it was the ultimate act of love that he give up his deity, become part of his creation, put on this failing, weak flesh, and show us the way to live. And here John goes through in some detail what that means. What that means. And that this love, this tabernacling, this sacrifice of the Passover actually brings brings about true atonement. We see that down in verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. Again, the the Pentecost message delving right into the theme of atonement. Abiding in each other. Father, I pray that they abide in me and me in you and me and, and that they, they copy our example of abiding in one another. And we have seen verse 14 and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. It's not that God shows love. It's just in God that he... He extends that love to us. God himself is love. God is love. It is, it, is, it is a matter of, it is a way to be, not just something to do, not just something to show, but it is a way to be. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. And remember what, how we, as, as we as human beings, as begotten followers of God, how we can show love, how we treat one another, and in our obedience to the commandments, keeping our, following God through the obedience to the commandments. So he, we, don't, uh, we won't take time here to go through verses 7 through, through 16, but we see this concept of him connecting the, the sa- Passover sacrifice as the ultimate act of love, so that ultimately his creation, those who opt in and choose to to be part of the covenant people can be at one with him. Again, just just like we were through Adam and Eve back in the garden before they made their choice. But why agape? Why this focus on love? Is it, again, this feel good, I need to 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 feel the love of God and have God love me and, and feel this connection to God? Or is there a purpose 
for having this, this connectivity, this atonement through agape love. That's where he gets into the purpose for love in the next section. Verse 17. Love has been perfected among us in this. Why do, why do, we, why do we aim to be perfect in love? That we may have boldness in the day of judgment. That we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. John, John will later on write an entire apocalyptical letter showing what it is going to be like when the, before the return of Christ. And we practice all of this. We commit, we, we, we practice all of these lessons of the holy days by committing to God, have, understanding the need to, to receive the Holy Spirit so that it will help us become more Christ-like. And then we can, we can give ourselves back to God through how we serve each other and love the brethren and follow his commandments so that when it comes time, our love for Christ will have been perfected and we will always make the right choice. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. All of this, the growing of the love of God inside of us, A, to serve, help serve our fellow brethren, but B, when the time comes in these, this lead up to the return of Christ, we may be bold and love God right back and, and love him the way he loved us. Because full agape removes the focus from ourselves and places it where God needs it to be. Focusing on others, focusing on Christ, focusing on, on him. Because we practice, we, and we practice that now through not idolizing ourself, through the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. So that when things get tough, we're game ready. And our choice, as we've heard is no choice at all. We've made those big choices already. So when the time has come, it's, it's quite simple. The, we, we, we play the game because we've been practicing the game. And we choose him every time, no matter the circumstances. Verse 20. John begins to start wrapping up. Here as he... As he Begins, begins to wind things down just a little bit here. We're not going to go through this line by line. But we'll begin in verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. How many times does John need to say this? And it, he, it's like he didn't even need to say it because it was said by so many others so many different times. But he continues to come back to this. And here he, here he actually backdoors it on the back of this boldness and fear choice in the times leading up to the return of Christ. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have received from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. So again, repetition, 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 repetition. Nothing new, but... God knows what we need, and he knows we need repetition. So before John leaves, he's coming back to these same points and reiterating them time and time again. Love for God means love for your brother. He says that here. They mean the same thing. If we 
we can't say we love God and have any hatred of any kind for our brother. Hear that way back in the Sermon on the Mount when God said, I don't even want your offerings. You leave them and you go fix it. And you don't even come to me until you fix your issues with your brother. Because you're not showing me love. I'm not, I'm not receiving this fake offering from you if you have something against a brother. So go fix that, then come back, and with your heart, I'll receive your offering. And John heard that decades, decades earlier, as he's heard many, most, of, most of these things. Again, how does God know where our love stands for him? How we treat the other members of the ecclesia. And love also means keeping commandments. He now goes, again, these, these two faceted ways of showing love, treating our brother and keeping the commandments. And he goes into that diatribe here in the beginning of chapter 5. Verse 3, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments aren't burdensome. When we understand what God's law is, that is a reflection of his character, that it shows us how to become Christ-like, how to reflect the glory of God, it's not a burden. It's, it's, what, it's what we would want to do. It's what we would want to do. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. He, who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And again, that faith is not a simple declaration that I believe in Christ. But if you believe him, love me and follow me. Love me and follow me. Do what I say. Love the brethren and follow me. And we see here that those who are in the state of Ganao, being born again or begotten, are in a state of overcoming. They're in a state of overcoming. Understanding that there's not a repentance from iniquity or transgression that is needed because they're not out in the world committing these terrible, lustful sins. They're not idolizing themselves. There's the need for overcoming because as frail human beings, we stumble. And, there's, and we understand the difference between the sin that leads to death and the sin that is just part of this existence that we're in, this, this existence between being completely human and being, com- and being part of the God family that we're in now in this church age after we receive the Holy Spirit and give our life to God. But our faith is in, we have the faith in, we also have the faith of Christ. The faith of Christ and the faith in Christ. That Christ can and will do all that he says, because if we follow him, he tells us he will. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, Paul says in Philippians 4, verse 13. Then we come down to verse 6. And... John's final testimony that Christ came to tabernacle in the flesh with his creation so that we don't ever forget or miss or get sidetracked or get convinced otherwise that he came in the flesh to tabernacle with his creation, that he's a product of the Holy Spirit and birth of a woman through water and blood. And he came as a man to dwell with us, not only to die and remove the penalty of sin from us, but to show us how to live in covenant with his Father. Verse 6 tells us, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. He came as a human being. He divested himself. Paul goes into that in Philippians 2. 
John is just reiterating that here. Christ goes into that back in the beginning of John. And it is the Spirit that bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness. And put brackets around in heaven, all the way through there are three that bear witness on earth. And that is absolute nonsense that someone has injected in there to try to convince us that this is Trinitarian. That the, the, the Godhead is closed and that we that there's no participation in the Godhead. That is what is the 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 biggest crime about the, the theory of the, the Trinity is that the Godhead is closed. And here this is an injection by the translators. What it really says is there are three that bear witness the spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three are one. And what they witness is is that Christ came of the Holy Spirit but was born of a woman and gave up his deity and became part of creation and took this stuff on. And why is that important? We see that through other teachings and he continues as to show us why that is important because it shows that flesh can will be able to take on spirit. Flesh will be able to, to become children of God, to take on spirit bodies. That flesh can be resurrected and changed into the spirit dimension. If we receive the witness of man, verse 9, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God which he has testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made himself a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given his Son. Again, all based this, this whole theme of Christ coming in the flesh, Passover, tabernacle, themes. And this is the testimony, verse 11, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. His Son came, he divested himself of his deity, he became a human being amongst the creation, and then was resurrected and was glorified, was returned to his glorified spiritual state, given his spiritual body back. He who has the Son has life. This is eternal life, that they know you, the Father, and me, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He who does not have the Son does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, that you may, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God, that you have that and that you continue in that. I've written these so you will continue to believe that all this is true. So again, this, this lead up to a, a, a cemented, assured belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He came and died for us. He returned back into his, he returned, he returned to the Father. And we will, if we, if we continue to believe in the name of Christ, have that same gift of eternal life given to us. Which brings us to John's concluding recap. When we read the next few verses, it's really just a, a recap of what we've already read through. We won't take time to read those verses. But in general, in a bullet point list, have confidence in Christ. Have confidence in Christ. Have, have such full faith that he is the Son of God. That, and that he will do what he says he will do. 
and simply ask him in full faith and have that confidence. Care for the brethren. Care for those who are of God, but simply battling human weakness. Not those who serve the adversary through iniquitous lifestyle. But those who, like we do, commit sin not leading to death. Who commit the human frailty sins. Care for the brethren. Keep yourself unspotted. Keep yourself out of these iniquitous lifestyles. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. These self-idolizing sins. Keep yourself committed to God and not succumbing to the adversary. And know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God, through Christ, is eternal life. Knowing God and knowing him through Jesus Christ is eternal life. Which then brings us down to an odd, short, terse conclusion. And it seems rather undescriptive. For all of John's description, of all of his description of agape, of all of his, his leading us through the various themes of the holy days and showing that the plan of God is, is, is from Genesis through to his final letter. He concludes with little children, keep yourselves from idols. As I read that, it seems odd. It seems misplaced. As speakers, part of, part of what speakers are trained to do is to have a climactic conclusion. Something that leaves everyone with, with, with a recap of what you've said and then with something that will, will impact them. He says, keep yourselves from idols. It seems misplaced until you realize exactly what he's saying. Idolatry is serving anyone, including yourself, but God. And where does that come from? All the way back to the very first commandment in Exodus 20. Exodus 20. He talked about the law of God. The law of God is about not committing idolatry. It is about loving the Father, loving God and loving our fellow man, and not caring what happens to us. Exodus 20. He, John concludes with, keep yourselves from idols. What he's saying is, idolatry has been the problem from the very beginning. So the last, the last word is don't be idolatrous. If there's one thing you can take from all of this stuff that I've, I've written, just don't be idolatrous. If, if you... If, if you struggle with what you're with studying and what you're going to remember, just remember this. Don't be idolatrous. The first commandment, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Very first commandment is about idolatry and loving only God and serving only God. Serving God has always been what the entire message has always been about. It's, what ha- it's why we're in this mess, because Adam chose to serve himself. Adam chose to serve the adversary. When he had a million different ways he could have served the father, he chose the one that served the adversary. All he had to do was not commit idolatry. That's all he had to do. The Genesis 3 account is all about idolatry, choosing something before God. The entire story of man has been about idolatry. 
how we have this endless cycle of when things are good, we serve ourselves. And then God has to come in and, and change things up so we learn our lesson. The plan of God expressed throughout the historical and future fulfillment of the appointed times of God is all about choosing God. The opposite of choosing God is idolatry. And that's why John concludes his letter with, with keep yourselves from idols. That's all you need to do. Keep yourself from idols. So this last living witness closes out this letter to the, to the Ecclesia with this simple but deep, deep statement. Keep yourself from idols and you'll be okay. Don't serve anyone else but God and everything will be fine. May 5th, 2011 was a historical, historical day. It wasn't because I turned 40 or because Daniel turned, I got to do the math here quickly, 13. 13? Wow. That was a little while ago. But because Claude Chules died in a hostel in Perth, Australia. Claude was the last surviving combat veteran from any country that served in World War I. And he died on May 5th, 2011. On that day, there are no more living witnesses of what it was like to be in the trenches. We now have only written testimony of what it was like to fight in the trenches of World War I. Everyone who did it is gone. That passed when Claude Schulz died on May 5th, 2011. Soon, the same will be said about World War II. As of this morning... There are only 826 living veterans of World War II. That sounds like a lot, except when you consider that's of all the people in the world that fought in World War II, in any army, there are only 826 left that know what it was like to have been there. And no one is younger than 89 years old. No one is younger than 89 years old. As time passes, it is the history books that keep us connected to the lessons of our past. And that is why this weaponization of words, this censorship, and this erasing of the uncomfortableness of our past is so wrong. Because we can't forget our past. We can't forget our past. It may have been bad, but, but even the bad stuff is there to remind us of where we need to be. John was the last living apostle of Jesus Christ. He was in the room when most of what has been recorded has happened. His message was simple. It's all true. It's all true. From the patriarchs to the scribes to the prophets to the apostles and everyone else who put pen to paper or voiced this magnificent story of redemption, it's all true. And how can you become part of that story? Simply follow God. Have faith in and of Jesus Christ and stop serving yourself. That was the message that John brought to us. And as we keep these holy days and look forward to history unfolding, let's think on these things. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.